The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Welcome to Deep Dive with the Institute for Justice. I'm Melanie Hildreth, and I'm here today with Anthony Sanders, the director of IJ's Center for Judicial Engagement, and Bob McNamara, an IJ senior attorney. As you can see, we're coming to you today via Zoom from our homes, and that's because of massive changes to -to day-to-day life as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. These changes are often the result of individual choices where people are just trying to be safe and responsible, but many of them are the result of government action, either recommendations from government officials or public health officials, or outright bans on gatherings or leaving home. So in light of this, we thought it would be interesting today to talk about the legal components of what is going on and how the government constitutionally can do these kinds of things and when and how it can exercise this kind of power. So Anthony, can you start by talking about how the government can forbid people from leaving their homes in the first place? Where does it get that kind of authority? Sure. Uh, so there's two levels that we should talk about here. Um, first of all, there's, there's of course, two levels of, of uh, government, primary levels of government in this country, the federal government, which derives its authority from the people through the U.S. Constitution, and also your state government, uh, which is set up under its own state constitution and has its authority. However, uh, it it sets it up through the the state people. Um, These bans that we're talking about, the stay-in-place orders, are, uh, are through state governments, and that's because states have this thing called the police power. The federal government does not have a police power. It has very strong powers, but they can only be exercised through its enumerated powers in the Constitution. And the police power, which every state exercises in in some way, uh, in a very large way these days, is the power to protect public health, safety, and welfare. Uh, And it is that power, now however it's set up is a different question, but it's that power that states draw upon uh, in issuing these orders. So, Bob, can you build on that a little bit and talk about how we're seeing that play out right now between uh, the way that state government, state government, state governors are behaving and the federal government and how they're kind of interacting with each other? Sure. So what we're seeing are a lot of orders issued by governors in different states. And what's actually going on behind the scenes, governors don't have the the inherent power to order citizens to do anything. The, the police power doesn't inhere in the governor's office in the states, it adheres in the state itself. And so generally what's happening is the state legislature has passed a law that empowers the governor or sometimes the director of public health or something uh, to issue orders in certain circumstances. Uh, And these are frequently very old statutes that the states are invoking that they haven't touched in years. There's a a long and robust history of quarantining that mostly in kind of a world with widespread vaccination, with antibiotics, we we haven't encountered in in our modern life. But quarantines date back, as as do most good things in life, Uh, quarantines date back to the Black Death in the 14th century, uh, when Venice started ordering ships arriving from plague-ridden areas to stay out of the city. Uh, There was a quarantine island where they had to go anchor uh, for 40 days. And the word quarantine actually comes from the Italian word for 40. Um, And the 
The concept sort of has endured from there, uh, sometimes invoked more successfully, sometimes less successfully. Uh, Philadelphia in the 18th century famously had a massive quarantine order in response to a malaria outbreak, uh, which malaria is spread by mosquitoes, and so the quarantine order didn't accomplish much. Um, But what you're seeing is the invocation of the police power in a way that I think is is legally interesting. Uh, Because usually in modern law, when we're talking about what the government's doing, uh, we engage in a lot of rights talk. Like lawyers love rights talk. Uh, whether you, and the question is always whether a private citizen has the right to do X or the right to do Y. Uh, and it's actually an example I've used for years uh, when I give law school talks uh, is I always ask the students, so if, if my city government ordered me not to leave my house, do you think that would violate the Constitution? And all the students say, oh, yes, absolutely. You do. And I stop them and I say, well, wait a minute. I'm I'm a pretty libertarian guy, but I'm not sure that it actually would violate the Constitution. Because maybe uh, the government is ordering me to stay home because I have been exposed to the Ebola virus and they want me to stay home until they find out if I'm contagious. Or maybe the government wants me to stay home because there's an election next week and I'm a very persuasive orator in support of the opposition party. And that puts the focus really where the focus should be in a lot of constitutional questions, which is on the government. Uh, The students start thinking about, well, why is the government doing this? What is the evidence that shows us the government is acting in good faith or bad faith for a good reason or a bad reason? Uh, And these are the questions that I think intuitively make the most sense to, to start with, and that in a lot of modern constitutional law conversations just kind of fall out of the conversation entirely, even though I think if you just think of it on, on a blank slate, they're the first questions you would ask. Uh, if, if somebody just came to you and said, you can't leave your house, the, the first question wouldn't be, well, wh- why do I want to leave my house? Do I have a good enough reason to leave my house? The, the first question would be, who the heck are you? <laughs> why, why are you telling me I can't leave my house? Uh, and so putting the focus on what the government is doing and on the scope of the government's powers is, I think, a, a useful way to think about it. Now, that doesn't mean that that rights talk isn't relevant. Uh, sometimes the government is doing something for a good reason, but a citizen has a superseding right. You know, you could say, ah, I see that you have a good reason to stop me from leaving my house, but now I'm going to come back and say I'm leaving my house for this incredibly overwhelming purpose uh, that sort of trumps your good government reason. But it's that two-step analysis that I think is is most important, and that's really the question when the state says it's exercising its police power. Before we jump to talk of individual rights, the first question is jumping to talk of the scope of that power. So, Anthony, do you want to add any thoughts to that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this this might be a little deep even for deep dive, but um, it's in, it's interesting to go back to uh, American conceptions of where that power comes from to getting a handle on uh, how broad the police power is, even when you're not talking about you know the rights that are say stated in the federal or state constitutions that that protect you from exercises of that power. Um, now any government can exercise power, right? Dictators exercise power. Um, uh, the kings of old exercise power in, uh, in European states. But the question is not, you know, does the government exercise power, but what is the legitimate power that the government has? And at the time of the founding of the country, there was an understanding uh, that that 
power came from the people. This is pretty revolutionary at the time, but now it's kind of second nature to us. So that the people have their own uh, individual power in, a, in what you might call a state of nature. Now, we've never actually had a state of nature, but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about where the power comes from. So this is the Lockean idea from philosopher John Locke that we each have our own powers. We then, we, ha we have our own rights. We then, uh, we then give some of that power to the government. Uh, and in return, we get protection from the government, but we don't give all of our power to the government. Now this contrasts with say, some of you may remember from high school or college, uh, Thomas Hobbes and his idea of Leviathan, that uh, in the state of nature, things are really bad. And so we give all our power, uh, literally all of our power to the Leviathan who then takes care of us, but he is an all powerful dictator. Locke in the American understanding was that that's not what happens. We come together, we give some of our power to the government, but not all of our power. And then we might, in addition to that, set forth um, some protections that give, even go uh, further than that in a few areas. And I think there's a really interesting example from the uh, Pennsylvania Constitution of 1790 uh, that, that came up with this uh, language for its constitution that then was subsequently put in, in a few other constitutions that that I can uh, just like to read uh, here uh, quickly for you. The, the provision says, it's at the end of their, their Declaration of Rights, uh, the equivalent of the Bill of Rights in the, in the state constitution. And it says, to guard against the transgressions of the high powers which we have delegated, we declare that everything in this article is exempted out of the general powers of government and shall forever remain inviolate. So what does that tell us? What well, tells us that the people are giving up power, maybe a lot of power, to the state government. Not all powers, but they are giving up high powers and general powers is what, is what that says. So this is more power than, say, the people gave to the federal government, enumerated powers. Um, it's not everything. It's not a, a Thomas Hobbes type of uh, delegation, but it is a lot. But then they say also, but that's dangerous, that, that can you can have transgressions of those high powers. And so we're going to take out of those powers everything that's in this Declaration of Rights, and you can never, um, you, you, you can never cross them. So subsequently, American history, we've long had this, this understanding that the police power is broad, but only so broad, because that's, that's all that's legitimately delegated by the people. But then on top of that, we have these rights. Now, what those rights are is a whole you know, different a uh, question, but uh, the, we have these rights that have had a separate layer of protection against things that the government might do that are not legitimate. And that's, I think, a, a really important place to keep the focus. So much of the time when we hear people debating the scope of government power today, they're talking about the federal government, and understandably, because the federal government does its best to exercise every conceivable power under the sun. But what you frequently see in those debates is people making this distinction that, oh, the federal government has only enumerated powers, well, states, states have the police power, and the implication is that the police power is infinite. And I think Anthony's making exactly the 
right point, which is that no, no, it's not. There, there is no government in the American conception of government that has infinite powers. There is no American government, federal, state, or local, that's actually been delegated the power of Leviathan in any context. We're talking about limited government power, and the question is just exactly where are those limits? Well, and I, I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about right now, especially because, Bob, in your earlier point, you mentioned Philadelphia's quarantine for malaria. So just practically speaking, how do you start to make that sort of limit? How do you start setting those sorts of limits in a situation like what we're in now, where it's, it's based on the best available information, obviously, that public health officials have, as that starts to change, maybe they're lagging, people think too much, and they bring lawsuits. What, what, how would you, or Anthony, how would you urge the courts to look at those kinds of cases? What, what rubric do you even use in those situations? Well, so I think the, the biggest question is who gets to answer that question in the first place? Because frequently the identity of who gets to answer that question determines whether that question gets asked at all. And we have, a again, a robust tradition in this country of that question being asked and answered in courts, uh, where courts get to say, uh, let's look at the evidence and let's see uh what, what the evidence is for what the government's doing. And if Philadelphia today, with our advances in sort of germ theory, was to impose a quarantine due to a malaria outbreak, uh, the, the Pennsylvania state courts and the federal courts would have a lot to say about that, because that's insane. You, you can't prevent malaria by quarantining people with malaria. Um, you, you can quarantine the mosquitoes if you can figure that out. Uh, and you'd make a million dollars if you could. <laughs> exactly. A dollars. That's, that, that's the project. We're all here at home. Um, but... When courts are answering that question, it, it keeps people honest in a way that I think you wouldn't necessarily see if we had delegated untrammeled power to the government. Now, the government has uh, an extraordinary degree of latitude when it comes to quarantine orders. Uh, since at least 1905, the federal courts have said that kind of quarantines and the, the spread of epidemics is an area where we're going to be especially deferential to the government's decision because these are uh, you know situations where sometimes there has to be a, a collective decision of whether that ship is quarantined. And we recognize that you have a right to get off a ship and to travel anywhere you want, uh, but that right can be trumped by the government's quarantine power if there's reason to believe that you're coming from an infected area. Uh, and so courts are especially deferential here, but courts are still involved in a way that I, I actually think you're seeing play out even before there are lawsuits. Uh, because what you see in a couple of states, you've seen very sweeping orders, uh, shutter, shuttering all businesses and preventing people from uh, engaging in all kinds of transactions. And people have responded in some states and said, hey, hey, wait, you shuttered all businesses, and that's going to deprive people of their right to counsel, of their right to have lawyers work on their cases when they're arrested. And that's unconstitutional. And even without a lawsuit, uh, this was Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania governor just amended the order and said, oh, that's a good point. That lawsuit's not going to go well for me. You see a lot of this debate uh, over the right to armed self-defense, where people say, look, uh, in addition to groceries, one of the things I need to be able to do is protect my family. And shuttering every kind of retail establishment where I can exercise that right is also a bridge too far. And so you see already the, the back and forth conversation about the scope of these orders that I don't think you would see if it weren't happening against the backdrop where courts are involved. Uh, and that's 
a, a limited role for the courts at this point because there is, frankly, very strong evidence that there is a pandemic and that the response to the pandemic has to be fairly extreme. And that's why I don't think you see massive constitutional challenges to the orders that are currently in place. But you do have the courts acting there as a backstop about the scope of these. And that's one of the things that I think is most important to keep in place, uh, because if there is any lesson of history beyond the fact that so many things trace back to the Black Death, it's that uh, power seized by government in an emergency uh, are rarely relinquished when that emergency ends. Uh, and keeping in place the, the genius of the American system and the checks and balances and the the knowledge that you can go to a court and say, hey, the government ordered me to stay home, but in fact, there is no evidence of infection, and that's unconstitutional, is ultimately, I think, the line between powers that can be exercised and relinquished and powers that are exercised and then stay in the hands of the rulers forever. Yeah, and I, adding to that, I think uh, it's important to keep in mind the, the importance of specific facts and specific circumstances. Uh, a good analogy can be to um, that, that how courts decide these questions is to look at nuisance law, uh, com just common law nuisance law. So uh, a lot of things that are justified under the police power, especially stuff that, that we talk about at IJ, like um, irrational occupational licensing laws and the like, are really kind of stretching at the, at, the, at the very edges of what the police power is justified to do. Um, but a nuisance law, although it's not a, the absolute core of the police power, which is you know, to present, prevent actual crime uh, from uh, of people hurting each other, um, nuisance law is, is in that core as well, such as uh, you know, if I have a pile of garbage on my land and it's right next to my neighbor, um, I am not actually trespassing on my neighbor's land, but there is all kinds of smell and 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 badness going over to my neighbor's property. It may attract vermin that then will go to my neighbor's property. And so there's a legitimate reason to cut back on that um, and uh, to have, say, a city ordinance that you, can, you, know, you can't have garbage on your land, or if you have it, you have to uh, compost, you have to treat it in a certain way. Um, so quarantine is in, in a way analogous to that because in a normal time, we're not going to have restrictions on, say, leaving your house if you have a common cold, even though you might actually uh, infect someone, uh, someone else. But when you have a pandemic disease like this, you have more justification for that. But that justification is going to be based on circumstances of you know, how the virus spreads, uh, what the what? Uh, how many other people have have caught the virus? Whether there's herd immunity yet? Whether people there's a vaccine yet? And that is going to change, uh, maybe change rapidly uh, as we move forward. And so, what the courts do in response to that, and what people's needs are in response to that, is going to change. Well, Anthony, one of the things that you mentioned just in passing is police power coming up in IJ's cases. So, be, based on what you've said and what Bob said, it's pretty clear that. It, Quarantine is not something that IJ is likely to sue about. And so people might think, OK, well, this doesn't come up in our litigation at all. But it, it actually does. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit, Bob, about um, a couple of instances or examples of how this actually does come up in the litigation that we're, we're pursuing, you know, every year. Sure. So a lot of IJ's litigation on behalf of entrepreneurs and small businesses is challenges to protectionist regulations, regulations that are just 
uh, designed to protect one favored business from economic competition. And part of the argument we frequently make in those cases, and it's phrased differently depending on the, the state constitution where we're pressing it, is that really regulations like that are outside the scope of the police power. Uh, if, if you want to get kind of Lockean and philosophical about it, which we, we can't in our legal Anthony briefs, does. but we, yes. we can here, uh, the, the idea is that no one delegated to the government the power to just engage in sheer economic protectionism and pure favoritism, just pure preference regulation. Uh, that's just not a power of government, and different constitutions express that idea differently. But it's, it's what I'm trying to get at when I talk to these law students about the, the Ebola hypothetical. Uh, because I think focusing too much on rights talk requires judges to to think about what kind of business you're running. And they, they make these strange distinctions where in, in some courts you you have a right to, to engage in certain kinds of personal relationships, but you don't have a right to run a business. Uh, you, uh, you have a right to, to have sexual relations. You don't have a right to fly on an airplane, uh, which Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at George Mason, once asked me, uh, what, what if you want to get on the airplane so you can have sexual relations? Um, and I, I don't think rights are always the right question when you can look at what the government's doing and what the government's doing is illegitimate. Uh, so I ask the students, if if my town tells me it's illegal for me to do something unless I give the mayor's brother $100, do you really need to know what it is I want to do? Like, maybe I want to ride a bicycle. Maybe I want to start a business. Maybe I want to learn to juggle. It doesn't matter what right I have to do the thing. The requirement that I give the mayor's brother $100 is illegitimate. And so when you're looking at regulations that uh, prohibit a food truck from parking in an area where it will compete with a, a restaurant whose owner happens to be on the city council, when you're looking at regulations that make it illegal to, to sell just ordinary goods without uh, becoming a, a member of a favored cartel, these are all regulations that we would say are outside the scope of the police power. These aren't designed to protect the public health and safety. Uh, the delegated power that's been given to the state or the local government is the power to make regulations that protect the public health and safety, regulations that prevent me from using my property to hurt you. Uh, and if I'm not using my property to hurt you and you're stopping me for some other illegitimate reason, that's just not a power of government. Uh, and what we frequently run up against are people who are kind of inculcated in what has become a, a prevalent view among American lawyers that all that matters are rights. That effectively, we've delegated all of our powers to government, government is Leviathan, and then we've clawed some of them back with rights. And so the only thing that matters is rights. And I think that's just false. That's false as a matter of constitutional law. That's false as a matter of kind of political theory. Uh, and part of our litigation is making sure that is false in practice. Uh, it's not the case that the government can do anything it wants to me uh, unless I can successfully invoke my right to free speech. Uh, the starting premise has to be whatever the government is doing to me, whatever I want to do to make my life better, my family life's better, my community's life better. I have a, a background right to do that unless the government can invoke a power that's been delegated to it that allows it to stop me. Well, with that, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Bob and Anthony, for joining me today. Um, and thank you for listening to this deep dive into IJ's work and some of the issues where we're engaged. You can listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an idea for a future show or something you'd like to learn about, you can email me at melanie at ij.org, and we may feature it in an upcoming episode.
The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty.